Hey, I am really glad that you are here this morning. We are continuing in the book of Luke. And if you've noticed in the last few weeks, people are asking Jesus a lot of questions. And, and I don't know about you, but when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to who God is, when it comes to now and eternity, I have a lot of questions. And probably you do too. And some of those maybe you've asked, some of those maybe you're still asking. But what's interesting is when we think about the questions that we have, one thing I was wondering is, how do we ask them? Let me give you an example of this. Uh, earlier this week, my wife was making dinner, and we were going to keep it simple, and, and we were just going to have scrambled eggs and muffins. And so she's making the scrambled eggs. And she makes them a little bit differently than I do. So as she was working on it, I walked up, stood next to her, looked over her shoulder, and said, Is that how you make scrambled eggs? And she looks at me with this look on her face like, why do you ask? <laughs> right? Because that's really it. Why do you ask? In that moment, she's wondering, are you curious? Would you like me to teach you how to make scrambled eggs? <laughs> or is this about to be a critique? In which case, we don't need to have this conversation. I will tell you, the eggs were absolutely delicious. <laughs> and she does them just fine. <laughs> so, I love you. <laughs> but, you could hear it. In that moment, there's like this, I'm not sure what the motivation is behind this question. Right? That's what Jesus keeps encountering in the last couple of weeks. They come to ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Then they get a little bit mysterious. They say, hey, Jesus, do we really have to pay taxes? Because if you call yourself king, then Caesar couldn't be king. And well, Jesus said, unfortunately, we do have to pay taxes. But these groups keep coming to him with kind of this motivation of setting a trap for him. And so as we go into our passage this morning in Luke 20, I want you to think about this for yourself. When you come to this book, and maybe you're still exploring this and you're not even ready to say that, that you're sure that God is there, but when you come to God, what questions are you asking and why do you ask? Right, because sometimes we're asking because we're really exploring, we're really trying to understand, we want to know God better. Other times I think we're looking for a reason not to believe. Right, there's something that we're having a hard time with, and that's what Jesus was facing today. And so if you look in chapter 20 of the book of Luke, and we're starting in verse 27, this group called the Sadducees comes up to Jesus because they've got one of these questions. So it says in verse 27, Then some of the Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying... All right, let's pause right there. So you've got to understand who the Sadducees are. Now Luke gives us a little hint by writing in there, they denied the resurrection. So the Sadducees were a religious group. They were religious leaders. They were Jewish. But they only believed the first five books of the Old Testament, what is called the Torah, the things that were written down by Moses. That was all they took as authoritative. And on top of that, they denied supernatural things. So this is a group that Jesus encounters a number of times, and there's an easy way to remember who the Sadducees are. And I'm going to just own up front, this is super cheesy, but it helps anyway, they didn't believe in angels. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in the resurrection. So they were sad, you see? <laughs> Thank you for laughing instead of groaning. <laughs> it, it does help you remember, though, because you can imagine if none of those things are real, that's kind of depressing. And that's who the Sadducees were. And you need to know that before they ask their question. Because they are going to bury the lead on their question. It's going to be about resurrection, but watch all of the other stuff that they put in the way first. It says, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, 
and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. All right, so Moses did write that. That comes out of Deuteronomy, where it's basically to make sure that a family continues to have an inheritance in the land. But now here's their hypothetical situation. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Now think about this scenario for a minute. When the first husband dies, that's sad. That's tragic. When the second husband dies, boy, what are the odds? But that's sad. That's tragic. By the time we get to the third and fourth husband, this is this is at least suspicious, right? And, he, and, and they're trying to present, and, and it's a hypothetical. This is not a real thing that happened. But they're trying to make it sound so crazy. Because what they're setting up is almost this impossible situation as if in this trap, Jesus will have to admit how ridiculous his teaching sounds. Because that's what they say. Then, last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Now, on the surface, there's something that sounds practical here. Right? Sitting in this room this morning, statistically speaking, there are people who have been married more than once for whatever reason. And if all of us end up in eternity together in heaven, then you might wonder something like that. Well, who am I married to in heaven then? How does that work? What would that be like? But you notice, Luke has already told us they deny the resurrection. And yet in their question, they say, in the resurrection... Whose wife will she be? You see, they're trying to pose a marriage question, but what they're trying to get Jesus to do is admit how ridiculous resurrection sounds because something as simple as this would create too much confusion. You're right, there's probably no resurrection. Never mind that they have already seen a man named Lazarus come back from the dead. That's one of the reasons that they were trying to kill Lazarus again because Lazarus is bad theology for them. And so what seems practical becomes a tough question that keeps them from actually believing and keeps them from understanding who Jesus is. But Jesus is going to answer their question. And I appreciate, I think, from him that as you look in verse 34, he doesn't ignore the marriage part of it. So even though that may not be the main point, he speaks to that as well. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So hear Jesus' words. Notice that he begins with the marriage that they asked about, but he's comparing two different things. This age, where you and I live right now, this earthly life, And that age, right? The eternity that he has been teaching about all throughout the book of Luke. And you see things, you know, if you can remember back to chapter 12, when he tells us stories like, hey, you're really excited about your wealth. You're really excited about how much you've made this year. You're building a bigger barn to keep track of all that stuff. Guess what? You're going to die tonight because all that stuff is from this age and it's not coming with you to that age. And when we read those, it's relatively easy to say, yeah, well, that makes sense. You know, it's all just stuff and it all just goes away. Well, he's making a similar comparison here, but this is a little bit different. This feels different to us, doesn't it? Because now he's talking about relationship. He's talking about, he's talking about my marriage. And I think every single time I've heard anybody bring this passage up, 
It's usually on that point. Well, what does he mean there's no more marriage? Well, what about all that stuff he told me about how I'm supposed to love my wife and how, and how she's supposed to love me and how important marriage is and, and then it just like goes away? I don't, I don't know if I like that. Well, let me just say, I don't really think this is a marriage passage. So Jesus speaks to it, but a lot of the questions that that raises for us aren't necessarily answered here. But I would encourage you with this. If marriage was given to Adam and Eve with the instruction, be fruitful and multiply, then that becomes a core part of the family. That's part of why marriage is so important. Not only that, but in Ephesians 5 is where Paul teaches us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wash her with water and the word. Marriage becomes a picture of how Jesus loves us. And God uses that metaphor all through scripture. He calls the followers of Christ the bride of Christ. So marriage is important. This isn't Jesus saying, who cares about marriage? It doesn't matter. It's no big deal. It doesn't last anyway. And I think that when we get to eternity, you know that you and your spouse, you're still you and they are still them. Right? Abraham is still Abraham. Isaac is still Isaac. Moses is still Moses. Jesus is still Jesus. You are still you. In fact, that's part of the hope of resurrection. Right? Is that when you compare Christianity to other religions of the world, you don't just kind of disintegrate into the ether and become a a spirit power in the world. You don't just come back as like a rat if you weren't very nice. (laughs) Or some other animal if you were kind of nice. Or a king if you really did a good job. Right? We don't lose those people. You are still you in the resurrection. You know, if it's a grandfather or a spouse, a child, a loved one, a friend that you've lost, who you know had their confidence in Christ, you will see them again and they will still be them. And I think that's the same for this relationship as well. So however it looks different, that is still part of the hope that we have as we look towards that age is that we will see people again. And yet it's as if Jesus is telling us that can't be your primary hope. right? That my ultimate hope for heaven is more than just seeing people again. My ultimate hope for heaven is that I'm in the presence of my God forever. right? That's what the resurrection life is ultimately built on. And that's why he gives us this promise. While we get hung up on no more marriage, he also says, hear me though, no more death. Whatever has separated you now will never separate you again. No more sickness, no more disease, no more betrayal, no more sin, no more tears. Jesus gives us a beautiful picture full of promises about the life to come. And so really what happens here is they pose this question about marriage, but the real question is, what about resurrection? Right? That's the piece that they denied. That's the piece that Jesus wants to make sure they understand. Because if resurrection isn't real, like even if you just take the first five books and you read all of God's standards for how we should live, how we should treat one another, how we should worship him, and then say, but this life is all there is, well, the the natural outcome of that is essentially what it was for the Sadducees. They were widely known as lovers of money, And they were infamous for using other people to advance themselves. Because if this life is all I have, then I better make the most of it. And if there's no consequence or reward in the next life because there is no next life, then as long as I can kind of skirt around the consequences now, why not? You see that? 
You see how that breaks? If resurrection isn't real. If what Jesus is giving them is false. And that's part of the problem that they ran into. And so I'll just tell you this. As, as they think about this question, as we think about our questions, Jesus already knows the questions that you have. You know, sometimes I know in my own prayer, I, I feel like I've got something I want to ask God or say to God, but I feel like I shouldn't say that to him. And, and then you have this moment where it's like, actually, God, you already know. So I'm just going to admit that that's what I'm thinking and that's what I'm wrestling with and that's what I'm struggling and that's what I'm confused about right now. And usually that's when it starts to unlock. When instead of me trying to figure it out or just kind of be stuck in it, I, I give that to God and let him start to teach me. So whatever your questions are, and maybe it is about something like this, you know, be willing to ask that. Because if the resurrection is not real, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, if the dead do not rise, hear this, then Christ is not risen. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. If Christ is not risen, you are all wasting your Sunday morning. Right? It's not that it's still helpful or still gives me some good ideas or kind of helps me get through the week. If Christ is not risen, what we are doing right now is pointless. That's what Paul writes us. You would still be in your sins because if he died and stayed dead, then he did not conquer death, he did not overcome sin, and you have no forgiveness. So if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. That's it. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Now you go read 1 Corinthians 15, and he makes an incredible case for the reality of the resurrection and the power that we get through it. Because if it's not real, then this is hopeless. If all we can do is look at this world and say this is all there is, then think about the things you would have to kind of admit to yourself about God. Think about how many things are broken in this world. How many things go wrong, go sideways, seem like God isn't doing anything, seems like evil isn't vanquished, seems like victory can't be won. And if the resurrection is not real, then we have to look at this life and say, hashtag deal with it. That's all there is. I guess we're stuck. Make the most of it because you're going to die soon. I don't know about you, but I think that stinks. <laughs> like to me, that's enough to ask the question, could resurrection be real? Like if I'm in a place where I don't believe that, I want that to be true. So I'm going to search into it. And so Jesus takes them right there. And I love how he does this because he starts on common ground with them. In verse 37, Jesus says, but even Moses, remember, Moses was the only thing they would listen to. Right? They took the first five books and they said to Jesus, hey, remember Moses wrote this. And they think Moses is the cannon fodder that they need to shoot down resurrection. And so Jesus says, well, hey, let's talk about Moses. Even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. When he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Ooh, teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Kind of shut him up. Because he takes them right into their own text. And this is what I love about the way that Jesus answers questions. He's always pushing us back into God's word. If you've got a tough question and you need a tough answer, you start here. You dig deeper. It's there. Because this is subtle. 
But Jesus is telling them, think about it. For Moses to, to kneel at the burning bush, as God is telling him, you're going to lead my people. And Moses says, I don't even know how to speak, Lord. I can't do this thing. And he's getting leprosy. And then it goes away. Like, amazing things are happening. And in that moment, Moses says, you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of whom died, at least biologically, before Moses ever lived. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob's son Joseph, went into Egypt 400 years later is when Moses is bringing them out. These men, as far as history is concerned, are long dead, and yet he talks about them as if God is their God right now. Because at the time that Moses sits at the burning bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are very much alive. They are in the presence of God. Because God is, and always has been, the God of resurrection life. You see, some of the people who were around Jesus looked at him and thought, you're breaking the Old Testament. This is new. We haven't heard that before. That's not what God said. I don't think I believe this. Jesus is telling them, this isn't new. I'm not making this up. This is what God has been telling you all along, and I'm here to fulfill it. Resurrection is not a new concept. God's been showing you since the beginning that those who die in him are with him forever. That is a promise to you and I as Christ followers as well. And that's why it's so helpful to be able to look for our theology, what we believe, what we understand about God, right in this book. It's not made up. It's not brand new. I'm not going to give you anything that can't come out of here. And if I do, then throw it away. Because this is where God has told us what he wants us to know. And so Jesus takes them right back into it. So, if the resurrection is real, How does that affect the way that I live today? If I have a certain number of seconds and minutes and hours today, how would I use them differently if the resurrection is real? If I'm headed for eternity, and you are too. Because if the resurrection is not real, then my relationships, my wife, my kids, people I work with, people I work for, Those all become, whether I would say it or not, almost like tools. Like, you're part of why you're here is to help me have a good life. Right? It becomes self-centered. But if the resurrection is real, do I love my spouse as if I might have to spend forever with them? (laughs) Right? Do I teach my kids in such a way that they might join me in eternity? Am I spending my energy leading them that way? Do I treat my employees, my boss? Do I respect my employees or the person that I work for as if I might have to see them every day forever? Oh, hey, man, I honestly didn't think you were going to make it here. Sorry about the way that I treated you back then, right? (laughs) Like, do I walk into every conversation, every moment and say, God, if this thing is about you and if your kingdom is coming now, but it outlasts everything here, then how do I react differently in situations? How do I react differently to people? Even just thinking about the way I spend my time, if I'm watching something on TV that I realize that is not really edifying for me and that is not glorifying to God. If I'm doing something online that I realize that is just temptation and I don't need that, am I willing to turn off the TV and click the little X because I know that God has something better in store? Am I willing to have integrity even if it costs me something now? Because I believe that God has something better in store in that age. 
to look past this age and to that age? Am I willing to do the hard work to put a rein on my tongue so that I stop speaking passive-aggressively and I change that for encouragement and love and gentleness and kindness? Because it's a lot easier not to bother with all that stuff and just kind of do whatever I feel like doing today. But if the resurrection is real, then we think about today differently. You know, as I thought about this passage, there's so many places you can track all over the New Testament where God talks about this. You know, things like Revelation where he's giving us a picture of how everything comes together in the end and how the dead in Christ are raised. You think about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he says that the dead in Christ shall rise first, right? That they're going to come with him. And it reminded me, I know I've shared this with some of you, but about a year and a half ago, uh, my Aunt Lynn died of cancer just in her 50s and just not, I mean, too young, too young. But I remember as I was going through that time, I was probably talking to my Uncle Tim like more than, like more frequently than I ever had before as he was processing what it was like to be losing his wife. And they were both followers of Christ, but I heard Tim asking questions that he'd never asked before. I realized I was asking questions I'd never asked before, and hearing him own them before God made me own them before God. Yeah, I really am asking that. But it was also incredible for me to watch, I mean, painful too, but as she was dying, it was almost as if for a while Tim's faith got weaker, and then it started to get stronger. As he kept hearing Lynn talk about the confidence that she had, that this was not the end for her, but that she was joining Jesus in resurrection life. And that even after she passed, now there's these moments where Tim will send me, you know, something like this that he reads out of the Bible or or notes from a, a church message that he heard or something where he's like, this is it. This is our promise. And that the joy comes in knowing, one, we're going to see Lynn again. She's just waiting there for us and she's coming back with Christ. Those are promises. But also how God has taught us to focus then on on ourselves And how he's bringing us in resurrection life so that we begin to use this time, like, like, like I said, I'm I'm talking to Tim more than ever before and the encouragement that he's giving me, I'm like, you're the one, I mean, you're closer to it. I should encourage you, but hey, I'll take the encouragement. This is wonderful. Thank you. We begin to think of others and how we bless them as we make our way toward that resurrection life. That's part of our hope. So when Jesus gives them all of this, now this is really interesting because it said that that they dared not question him anymore. So now it's Jesus' turn to ask a question. And so in verse 41, he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Now, first glance, this feels like now for something completely different, right? But as I was pressing through this, I was trying to figure out, if they ask that question, why does he ask this question? Like, is this just total non sequitur, or is Jesus trying to do something here? Well, I think he is, and so I want us to push through this together, because I I don't think it's the left turn that it looks like. I think there's a reason that he asks this. And what's stunning to me is that after he asks this question... Then it really is like end of conversation and they move on to something else. So I thought, well, maybe that's just Luke's account of it. Let me check, you know, Matthew and Mark record this conversation as well. Why is it that Jesus and Luke, led by the Spirit, and Matthew and Mark for that matter, none of them give the answer to this question? Jesus asks the question and then just leaves it there. 
Well, part of this is that the rabbis had a method where you would lead people to discovery by asking them questions. So some of you know that my family homeschools, and Melissa does, like if I round it off, 100% of the work. <laughs> but I try to help when I can, and one of the classes that I get to teach is critical thinking. Because you've got to teach kids not just, like, know the answer and try to memorize it, but how to think, Right? And so one of the things that I've learned is if I just give them the answer, they write it down or they try to memorize it and then they forget it. But if you can ask them questions that helps them discover, you know, then you have what I like to call the joy of discovery. Like you feel like you dug up a buried treasure. Oh my goodness, did you know this was down here? Did you see this? You got to tell somebody. Like that's the excitement that we get when we're studying scripture too. And so Jesus leaves us with this question that feels like it has no answer But I want to give you something right out of our critical thinking class. If you pull that up. Okay, so if figure one is a turtle, then figure two is not a turtle. So here's the question. Is figure two a turtle? Yes, no, or more information needed? You don't have to say it out loud in case you're worried you'll be wrong. That's okay. Just think it in your head. Reality is, we know what to do if figure one is a turtle. We don't know what to do if figure one is not a turtle. The answer to this is more information needed. Now, what stinks about this book is that's the end of the problem. There is no more information. All all you can say is that we don't know and you move on. It feels like that sometimes. But what I love about this book and what Jesus is doing right now, there is more information. And he wants us to follow the clues to find it. I think that's why he asks these questions, because even in his questions, there are clues to what's coming next. And we have got resources that help us to do that. You know, one of the things that our vision really for this service, when you're in an equipping service, when you're part of our equipping ministry, when we're studying the Bible together, the idea is not Chad and Drew have all the answers. You guys listen, then you leave. Right. That would be back to just tell my kids what to think and hope they remember it. Right. Hopefully, part of what we want to do is that we are demonstrating, we're teaching you how to dig into this, how to find that buried treasure, how to have the joy of discovery. And so I wanted to give you just real quick some of the tools that I use on a regular basis to do exactly this kind of thing. One of those is the New King James Study Bible. Study Bibles are awesome because Jesus references the Psalms here. Right? A good Bible will have cross-references kind of between those columns that will tell you exactly which psalm he's talking about. You can go look that up. Uh, Study Bible also has notes at the bottom that can give you a little bit of an insight of what's going on here. Another one, in case you haven't heard it, is something called the Blue Letter Bible. Now, some time ago, I used to use this, and it was kind of unwieldy, and I kind of quit using it, and then somebody told me, oh, they polished it. You should check it out again. This thing is fantastic. So there's both a website and an app called Blue Letter Bible. And I'm telling you, I I, I use this all the time, multiple times a day, um, in in personal time with God, in studying for this stuff. Because you can pull up the text. You can compare translations if you want to. But what I love is you can literally, like you hit a verse like this. David said in the Psalms, like, where's that? Tap the verse, and it pulls up this whole list of tools. And you can get commentary that helps you understand it. um, Text commentary or audio commentary. Um, You can get interlinear, which means it'll show you the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek. And even if you don't know the original languages, it lines them up side by side, English word to Greek word, so that you know exactly what it is. You can tap that word and find out all the definitions of what that word means and all of the places in the Bible that it's used. 
So anywhere else that Jesus is talking about resurrection or Jesus is talking about David, like it'll show up. So you should be downloading that right now. All right, you don't have to, but I'm telling you, I love that tool. So that's a great one. Another one is on our own website. Um, we have a, a place on our website, horizoncc.com slash resources, where we have a basically a book list of resources so that when you have questions, like what about resurrection? What about Jesus' death? What about depression? What about Genesis? How do I understand these things? Because you and I both know, if I go to Google or if I just say, hey Siri, explain Genesis to me. Like, who, who knows what I'm getting back, right? Even if I go to Amazon and just type in book about Genesis, like who knows what I'm getting back? So we have had um, people on our team who have actually read through the books that you'll find on there carefully to make sure that these help us actually understand God's word better. And so that's a great place to go to find um, Bible studies, commentaries, those kinds of things. Um, and then to be part of an equipping study group, a group that is taking God's word on a weekly basis with other people and just digging in. I can tell you, um, I'm in a couple of those, and I often, like I'll teach on a weekend like this, then I'll go talk to my guys through the passage and we're figuring out, hey, what about this piece? Asking more questions. How do we apply that thing? And I wish, like, then I could come back and teach it again because <laughs> I learned so much stuff just from being around other people who are pursuing God the same way. So if you didn't know we have groups or if you haven't been in one before and you're interested, write it on a card, jump on the website and fill out the form or just come talk to me because I would love to help you get into that kind of community with other people. So all of those tools are the kinds of things that we have access to to help us answer the kind of question that Jesus just dropped in our laps. How is it that we can say that Christ is the Son of David and Lord? And so I want you to do this with me right now. I know we got to do it kind of quick, but I want you to kind of track this with me because the first clue that Jesus gives us is almost a given. He said that they say Christ is the Son of David. Now if you look at Matthew's account of this, literally somebody in the crowd just made that statement. So Jesus is pulling out their statement and saying, you're right, we all agree on that, we don't need to spend a lot of time on it. But if you track that, it is all over the Old Testament. Uh, I just bumped into another one yesterday in, in Psalm 132. Hey, David, the Messiah, the anointed one, he's coming from your line and he's going to sit on your throne. Right, so everybody understood that, everybody believed that. And so for Christ to be the son of David in this conversation was essentially a given, and it meant that he was going to be a human being. He was going to be a blood relative, a descendant of David. But now watch what Jesus does. Because in that verse, he said, Now David himself said in the book of Psalms. It's just like he did with Moses. He says, but I want to go deeper than our conversation. Let's dig into the text. So when they said, Lord Moses says, Well, hey, you want to talk about Moses? Let's talk about Moses. Same thing here. They tell him, well, the Christ is the son of David. You're right. Now let's talk about David. Because David himself called the Christ the Lord. And if you pull up the Blue Letter Bible or if you've got the references in your book, it tells you this is from Psalm 110. So our second clue is that in Psalm 110, David says, Christ is Lord. You see, everybody at that time, all Jewish teachers knew, and still do, I suppose, that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. This is about the Christ. And then here's just that other subtle piece that Jesus says, well, if it is, then think about what's happening here. Just like for Moses to talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob means that they must still be alive, for David to refer to the Christ as Lord in that moment, as if there's a conversation going on right now, David speaks as if the Christ is already alive. He's already there and he's already active. And not only that, if they believed that he would be David's son, 
And how could David call him Lord? Because Lord means master. And when you read David's life, you know he has only one master. And that is God. So in this psalm that they all accepted as messianic, David is referring to Christ as Lord. God, who has already been living from ages past. Now Sadducee, who denies the supernatural, would have to say, how is that possible? <laughs> because for that to be possible, he, the Christ would have to be God and man. What we call the incarnation. That's why Jesus is asking them this question, how, how can that be both? And he wants to show them. Because this, this matters, right? If Jesus is God... Do you obey him as God? Like if Jesus is God, do I think of him as my my meal ticket to heaven? Or do I obey him as God? And if Jesus is also man, if he cared enough about this physical world that he is going to give us bodily resurrection, that he is going to recreate a new heavens and new earth, then these people... With these bodies, they matter. So do I love them the way the Christ loved them? Do I serve them the way the Christ served them? Do I care about the needs of the people around me, the needs in my family, and the needs of the world the way he did when he said, it's so important to me that I will come in the flesh? Because then what happens is, to pull these things together... If you actually go back to Psalm 110, and I wish we had time to do the whole psalm right now, so I'm giving you a homework assignment. Go read Psalm 110. (laughs) You will love it. But one of the things that comes up there is he talks about this guy named Melchizedek. So as David, he calls the Christ the Lord, but he also says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. He says this now to the Christ. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, when he wrote that, other than the Spirit knows what he's doing, it would come out of nowhere because the only other place that Melchizedek had been mentioned to that point was all the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, where Abraham tithes to this man named Melchizedek, who it says is Melchizedek, king of Salem, who brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. He's there for about three verses, and then he disappears until Psalm 110. But look at this moment, because Melchizedek is a word that means king of righteousness. It says that he's king of Salem, which means king of peace. But it also says he's a priest, which according to all of the Old Testament covenants is impossible. To be a priest, you have to be from this family line. To be a king, you have to be from this family line. And so here was this man who came before all of those covenants, who was beyond all of those covenants as a king and priest, And so Psalm 110 that Jesus has just pointed us to also says, this is our third and fourth clue, that the Christ is priest and king forever. How is this possible? See, for the Christ to be son and Lord, he had to be God and man. For the Christ to be king and And priest, he has to be greater than all of the Old Testament covenants. 
greater than the covenant with Abraham, greater than the covenant with Moses, greater than the covenant with David, all of whom we have heard about today. He is above them, he is beyond them, he is greater than them, he was before them, and he fulfills them. That is the only way that he can be priest and king. But how could he be son and lord and priest and king forever? I think this is where it starts to pull back together. The only way to be that forever is if he lives forever. Right? But by the end of this week, in Jesus' earthly life, he's going to die. At least biologically. But by the first day of the week, he is going to rise again. You and I saying tonight that because of his resurrection, we can be risen with his saints. If the resurrection is not real, he is not the son of David, he is not the Lord of David, he is not a priest, and he is not a king. If the resurrection is not real, there is no Christ. But if it is real, then Jesus is son and Lord and priest and king forever. And the only other place that Melchizedek shows up in the Bible is in the book of Hebrews where it pulls all of these things together. And this is your second homework assignment. <laughs> Get your blue letter Bible app out. Do this later. Start with Hebrews 6, 19, just a couple verses in chapter 6 and read through chapter 7 and watch because this is exactly the homework that the author of Hebrews did to pull together how God made this possible. Because he says, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right? Just as Paul told us, if there's no resurrection, it's futile, you're stuck in your sins. But if there is, if Jesus' life lasts forever, then he is able to save you forever, no matter what, completely, fully, to the uttermost, because he has resurrection life. And this is a great Blue Letter Bible moment. If you go in there and you click that word endless, this is the only time that this is used in the entire New Testament. And the subtlety of what that means, that word means indestructible. Cannot be destroyed. So forget the amazing Spider-Man, forget the incredible Hulk. You and I serve the indestructible Jesus. And he offers his resurrection life to you and I. I can have resurrection life because of Christ's resurrection life. You see, when he said earlier in this passage that we want to be those who can attain to the resurrection, to be counted worthy to attain... He's not saying that that is something that we work for. He's not saying that is something that we have to fight for. It's not a question of, am I good enough? It's like he told Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him. He was counted worthy because he believed God. That is how we get to resurrection life. Because I need a lot more than just changed behavior. It's my heart. It's my soul. It's my desires. It's my mind. I need all of me to be resurrected, to go from death to life and that is only possible through Jesus Christ. I can have resurrection life because of Christ's resurrection life. Can we pray that way right now? 
And maybe this is the first time that you've really understood that and you want to say that to him. Jesus, I trust you for forgiveness. I want your resurrection life. If you've still got questions, keep asking them, but don't let them keep you from getting to know who he is. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we come to you and I thank you so much for sending us your son in the flesh, our Lord, our Christ, our priest, our king. Father, thank you for giving us this book that you wrote so that we can understand you. Thank you for putting your spirit in us and among us to teach us and to help us know how to live this way as if that resurrection life is real and it's coming and we can begin to experience it even now through your kingdom. Lord, for anyone here who has questions, I just pray that you would meet us there as we explore, as we dig, as we discover. Lord, and for anyone here whose heart might be saying, I want that and I don't know if I have it, would you give them the courage first to just talk to you? And second, maybe even to talk to someone else here at Horizon to help them think through those questions and ask those things and to know you better and to have that trust. And in all of it, we will give you thanks for resurrection life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here. We will see you back next week.